0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Gary Steingart, author of the memoir Little Failure and four novels, including The Russian Debutante's Handbook, Absurdistan, Super Sad True Love Story, and Lake Success. Steingart is known for his satirical sense of humor, along with his big-hearted, deeply flawed characters. He emigrated with his family from Leningrad, Russia, to America when he was seven, and the themes of being an outsider are prevalent in his work. Steingart's latest novel, Lake Success, tells the story of Barry, a failed New York investment banker who rose to riches from his modest upbringing by his widower father, who cleaned pools for a living. Barry is married to Seema, an Indian-American, and together they have an autistic son named Shiva. The book opens with Barry fleeing his family and a federal investigation into his investment firm. Barry boards a greyhound in search of something better. We began the discussion with Steingart discussing the origins of Lake's success.
1: Well, you know, I wanted to do a book about America. At a certain point in its history, and I knew that 2016 was going to be a big year one way or another. So I really wanted to get that down on paper, and I thought the best way of doing that was to leave the coast and go through some of the poorer parts of America on the poorest mode of transport imaginable. And that, of course, is the Greyhound bus. Uh, And that's what I did, and that's what my character, Barry, did. Uh, The other problem I was sort of trying to work out is, you know, writers, you're always told, write what you know. And, um, you know, I grew up in New York and a lot, I think almost all of my novels have something to do with New York, some less, some more. But New York always pops up. Uh, but all, most of my friends who I grew up with uh, were gone. You know, they just couldn't afford to live there anymore. Uh, so they went to Berlin or L.A. or you know, whatever, Boulder. Uh, and um, so I thought, who's left? And I kind of started digging into who was left. And it seemed like at least the part of Manhattan where I live. Uh, everybody worked for one form of finance or another, and many of them more successful and worked in hedge funds. And that's how the idea of Barry Cohen, the hedge fund manager, was born.
0: It seems like in a lot of your work that I've read, not just this novel, determining the exact net worth of what people are worth is important to you, that exact number. You begin that with this novel. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's two things.
1: One is I think that I have been living in New York for for a very long time. And it's incredible how much people will actually talk about how much they make, what their apartment is worth. You know, in fact, what's your apartment worth is the, sort of the first question that, that often pops up or, or how much did you pay for your apartment, how much did you pay for your rent. So when I was doing Super Sad, I decided to do it one better. And all the characters just have all their vital data displayed in front of them. So, you know, you meet somebody and you're, you know how much credit card debt they're carrying and, and That helps you determine how successful, uh, you know, if they're a good uh, romantic partner or not. The other part of it was also, I think, growing up poor. And growing up poor, you're always talking about money, you know. And what was interesting to me is when I met hedge funders, many of whom grew up lower middle class or thereabouts, not all of them, but but many of them certainly. um, For them, the idea of how much are they worth has been imprinted on their minds since the very beginning. Um, It's the most natural state of being is wondering what they're worth. So the book begins with, you know, how much money Barry has under management.
0: So when Barry starts out on his journey, we see him in the very beginning. He's gotten into a fight with his the nanny of his son, his wife, Seema, who's about to become his ex-wife, we think. And he takes off on a greyhound across America to search for an ex-girlfriend that he's sort of putting all of his hopes and dreams for the future of his life into So he gets on the Greyhound and he travels across America, and one of the things that I think he's proudest of and that he's known for by the reader is being, quote, the friendliest guy on the street.
1: Yes, and without giving too much away, uh, the more we learn about Barry, the more we realize that being the friendliest guy on the street did not come easy to him, Uh, that he had to practice what he called his friend moves. Uh, He actually grew up being quite a nerd. Uh, He grew up in the 70s and 80s, and his favorite activity was programming as Commodore 64, but he was a very lonely child. So he developed almost like a kind of program for talking to people, you know, the way in, you know, in in computer programs, what was the, I think basic was the name of the computer language we had when we were kids. It was, you know, that kind of if then proposition, if something happens, then this happens. So if someone says good morning, then you say, Oh, did you go to the little Lake success mall? You know, so he kind of developed all these, what do you call friend moves? that's what he calls them, as a way to sort of compensate for the fact that, and I'm not going to give him a diagnosis, but that he himself uh, has difficulty with social cues and difficulty with conversation. So this was a way to compensate. And at a certain point in the book, he meets a certain kid, and he begins to attempt, who has a very similar kind of uh, uh, profile, if you will, and he attempts to help this kid develop his own friend move so that he becomes less lonely. Uh, to me, that's almost sort of Barry's saving grace is that he's very hard, working so hard not as a hedge fund manager, because he's a terrible hedge fund manager, but working really hard to compensate for a lack of social stuff by forcing himself to, to sort of create this program of, of prompts as he goes through life. And that makes him the friendliest guy on the street.
0: It seems like that you give your characters, I've only read two others of your book, Super Sad Love Story and Absurdistan, but both of them have male characters who are deeply flawed, but they have something about them that is very endearing. And I'm wondering if this is a really conscious decision on your part, and it's, it's maybe alienation from their parents, just feeling like they're a loser mm-hmm. and trying to not be a loser, you know, searching for a dead father. They, they have this vulnerability that you add to them. Yeah.
1: No, I think, I, I think it's, it's, it's parenting. You know, I, I've i had some absolutely horrendous people in my, in my research uh, for this book, obviously. Um, but dig a little bit and the parents come out, right. And the, and the, and the family circumstances come out, you know, so many times one hedge fund person will tell me about it, another hedge fund person. His mother never loved him, you know, almost as a statement of fact um, because to, to, to create this kind of world where, you very often do marginalize your, you know, every part of your existence for this one pursuit, the making of more and more money. There's no social benefits to it. There's really beyond a certain point, no benefits to your family. In fact, one can argue that having that much money actually screws up kids quite a bit. Uh, so there's not, there's really no net gain after a certain amount of money, but you do it because a part of you is missing and you're doing it to overcompensate for that part. And I think Barry is trying so hard to get there. Um, but he can't for many reasons. But I think, you know, when I was modeling Barry on certain, uh, on, on people I've met, i would met, I would always choose the most sympathetic one. And, and you may say to yourself, wow, this is not the most sympathetic character you've ever written. But, you know, given what I had to work with, I was really trying to do the best I can in saying, well, in almost reverse engineering, he's Y because of X. This happened, and now there's this. Which is not to say, you know, that I'm looking for anyone to come away thinking, wow, hedge fund guys are are great. It's rather to say, how deeply flawed are these people? Is there any hope of redemption? And that's what I think you want to ask of any of your characters
0: yeah and we really see Barry not in his setting it's it's not like we see him trading funds. we see him on the road. This is a, a journey story where you take your character on a journey which isn't foreign to you. your other characters have also been on journeys so what's what's attractive to you about that
1: well first of all i want I did not want you know like the traditional um, finance is best seen on screen you know and there's a bunch of well, basically, men, middle-aged white men, yelling into phones, screaming into phones, running around with suspenders, you know, trading blips across the screen. To me, you know, some shows do it brilliantly. I think Billions is a great show, but I wanted to make sure that this guy is a hedge fund manager, but we don't really get into the trades that much. They pop up every once in a while, and there's a, you know, he's fleeing New York because of an SEC investigation, so we learn a little bit about how that works. But that's really, it's a, it's a much more personal focus and. I do travel a lot. I used to be a travel writer, for travel Leisure, And I found that um, being somewhere where you're not in your comfort zone is the best time to examine yourself because you really see your own reactions to things. You know, and I was always, I always kind of wish that there was somebody with a camera following me around so that I could remember, and mean, often I write down what happens, but just sort of capture my own expressions as I go through an unfamiliar world, you know. And I think that's, that's very instinctual for me because my parents remember, I remember when I came when I was seven. My parents came when they were much older. So the idea of, of, of a kind of displacement, and obviously it's a very different kind of displacement if you, you, know, you, you go to Bali than, than, than if you have to emigrate to a different country, but some sense of I'm not in my usual habitat, what's going to happen next? And, and I think you can bring out so much of your character when that happens. Uh, Absurdistan, you mentioned reading it, is a book where the character spends most of his time uh, in places that he does not love and in fact wants to escape.
0: sometimes your characters are yearning for sort of impossible things. You know, Barry is yearning at first for his ex-girlfriend, which it could be possible. We don't know. Misha is yearning for his, his dead father. But is there something that ups the stakes in literature when they're yearning for something that might not be attainable?
1: Nothing is really attainable. I mean, look, if you have a character that attains things, uh, to me, that's boring. You know, I, I, what, what kind of an ending is it when, when the character decides, you know, well, I'm going to get married and I'm going to have a great 401k and you know, my kids are going to go to good schools and life is just going to be great. Um, you know, I'm going to get that summer house. That to me is, is, is not what literature is about. Literature is always about uh, the golf in the way you perceive yourself and the way you actually are. Uh, and, And that's what I try to put my characters through all the time, this constant, you search for something, you search for something, you think you see it on the horizon, you get close to it, but it's not there. And that's both the tragedy of life and the funny thing about life, this endless search that we have for getting somewhere, you know, just about ready to get it, and then you don't get it. And to me, that's both sad and kind of funny. Uh, and, and Barry really is. I mean, he's searching for something step by step across the whole country. It's like a scavenger hunt almost. And he's, he's looking for this and he's interacting with people. And he thinks any time, any second now, he's going to have a genuine interaction that's going to blow away all the interactions that his friends back on Wall Street have. It's going to be the, the most brilliant, you know, interaction where people think he's just one of them. You know, his friend moves are going to just carry him across the country. And everyone's going to say, hey, good, good job, buddy. You succeeded, you did better than us, but you're also just like us. But that never quite happens. Everyone sees right through him in a way that he can't quite see through himself.
0: But he has such an endearing quality of he really does want to connect with people. And especially in this world where we're just attached to our phones and and our devices, we don't look up very often. And part of his journey is looking up. And one of my favorite lines in the very beginning, he's in Baltimore and he meets a, a young boy who's a drug dealer named Javon. And he gives Barry some crack and Barry says he was given a genuine piece of America, but he's really trying to relate to this person.
1: Yeah. And I think there's two, two aspects of this. So one of the, the sort of, uh, one of the devices that I use in this book, which is, which is a bit of a shortcut, is that Barry, from the very beginning, has to get rid of his cell phone for complicated reasons. Uh, he's being traced and tracked, etc. cetera. Um, so he has to get rid of his cell phone. Now that, for the rest of the journey, you know, this is early in the book, the rest of the journey, he can't be on his phone. So he actually has to look up and he actually has to talk to people. Now, when I was actually, when I did this whole trip by Greyhound bus, I found myself in this kind of weird mode where I was talking to people, trying to listen to people, but also because I was in semi-journalistic mode, I was always constantly whipping out my phone and trying to jot down all the absolutely incredible, you know, some surprising things that people were saying, all the things I was seeing. So to me, Barry's travel has this kind of purity that most of us can't achieve, even if we're trying to do the trip ourselves, because we're always trying to, you know, track things down. In some ways, recently I've learned how to drive and Driving actually is interesting because you really can't be, you know, looking at your screen. It's one of the only times where you can't be looking at your screen, and I actually find myself noticing quite a bit uh, when I'm in a car because I I mean, I guess you could text and drive, but for a driver like myself, that would not work out well. Um, So, uh, and I think it's because he's worked so hard on friend moves, and because those the friend moves that he worked on as a a child, that to him, he's really from almost a different planet. It's almost like the journey is trying to understand the natives of another planet. Um, and I think also that partly comes from the fact that the, the more I hung out with hedge fund guys, the more I started to think, my God, they really do live in a world that, I mean, New York, Manhattan is not a gated community, but in some ways it is. You know, there's, if you only go beyond, you know, if you don't go beyond a certain street and their lives are very circumscribed, you know, they'll live on the Upper East Side. Let's say their office is in Midtown, their club is in Midtown, their, uh, their home is in, 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 their summer home is in West Hampton, something like that. So, and often they'll be able to fly by helicopter there, something like that. So you do lead a life of very, very circumscribed life, even in an exciting city like New York. And I almost felt sorry for them in a sense, because they go to some club where the food would be terrible, you know, and they'd go there because all their connections were there. And I remember taking some of them to some of the best restaurants in New York, which are, some of them are not even that expensive. And they were just shocked But how good the food was and how inexpensive it was. So for Barry, who genuinely wants something better, he knows his life is not good. You know, um, I think this really presents a chance to see the world as it is, the world that's been denied to him by his wealth.
0: It's interesting because the people he meets don't know of his wealth unless he mentions it to them, which he doesn't often do it. More often, it's like, I don't have any money to buy a burger. I've been, you know, I've been robbed. I have nothing. Please help me. But he does want to be an influence on less fortunate. He he spends a lot of time musing in his mind about how he can help the people he've met along the way with his watches or other programs. He kind of is in this fantasy of finding his purpose in life through helping others.
1: Well, one thing I realized during my journey is that um, the happiest people i met were by far not the richest people. In fact, the rich people that I've met are just, you know, They're above the very poor people I've met in terms of their, what appears to be their satisfaction, their level of contentment. But the really content people were not wealthy, but they weren't poor either. They were, you know, middle class, maybe even closer to upper middle class, depending on how you look at it. But they all had jobs where they actually helped other people, where they had some kind of stake in the communities in which they lived. You know, one of the the, the few really amazing people I've met were uh, professors at the University of Texas at El Paso, which is a a great and, and it plays a role in the book. Uh, UTEP is this great place where there's most of the kids are first generation working class students. Many come from Ciudad Juarez, the Mexican border, border town. Um, so the people who taught them they live pretty decent lives. I mean, you know, the, the pay is pretty good given that the standard of living at, in El Paso is is you know very cheap compared to New York or, or San Francisco or any of the other coastal cities or, or even I'm sure even Denver. Uh, and but you know the the, the life satisfaction was was palpable i mean it was self-evident that what they did made a difference in the lives of others and nothing nothing could beat that now many hedge fund guys you know want to work with charter schools or whatever and there's a section in the book that i may read later uh, which kind of deals with that but the uh, you know it's all theoretical there's really there's no if you don't live in that world it is very hard to walk in and, and prescribe things and you know and this whole idea that because I'm a success as a businessman, I can I can have uh, uh, I know what I'm doing and I know how to mold sectors of society. Well, you know, our president's a businessman at this point <laughs> uh, and and we can see the results of that. So there's really no correlation here. You really have to know what you're talking about.
0: In the book, you juxtapose Barry's journey with his wife. So he is married to an Indian American woman who is named Seema, and they have a son, Shiva, who's autistic. So tell me a little bit about your choice of her character and then the situation with their son.
1: Well, as an immigrant and as somebody who went to high school, Stuyvesant High School, which was primarily immigrants, and primarily immigrants, you know, when you go to when you go to a Stuyvesant reunion, so many of them. Are working in hedge funds or other parts of finance. So for me, that connection was was, was fairly easy to make um, because it's a character that I, I really really know. I mean, I wouldn't know how to write a, a non-Asian version of Sema or even of that kind of, of, that kind of character. So she her you know her her background her heritage was easy for me to, to work off of. Um, the choice of an autistic kid was also interesting. I mean I I so many of my friends have kids who are on the spectrum, um, and I feel a kind of often a kind of kinship with them, I, I mean, or, and with autistic people in, in, in general. Um, uh, meeting Temple Grandin was probably the biggest highlight of, of, of last year, and she's just this incredibly warm and funny person, but it also takes me back to, you know, to the, the sort of barrenness of my own life, which was, I also tried to develop friend moves, and I'm not diagnosing myself as being on the spectrum. Part of it was I was an immigrant who couldn't speak English well, but this idea of, of how difficult it is to read social cues, how difficult it is to interact with people, uh, was something that really caught my, my eye, and, caught my attention. And, um, and also, you know, like, as I said, when, when I meet people who are on the spectrum, there's a, there's a feeling of understanding. There's a feeling of, of compassion, but also of, you know, hope. And, and of course the spectrum is this gigantic, it's, it's a spectrum. So uh, people present it in very different, uh, um, you know, there's no, there's no one type of autistic person, obviously. Um, but it was something that I felt very close to. And after writing this book, it, interestingly enough, well, I don't want to give away too much about what happens to Shiva, but there's a person whose father contacted me who had pretty much really followed the arc of this kid's life. Um, And, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but it it was absolutely wonderful to hear that there's there's somebody who shares so much with him in real life.
0: Well, one of the things that Barry holds on to, that's part of his identity and sense of self that you share with him, although I don't know to what degree, is that he loves watches he collects watches <laughs> these aren't like old bugs, bunny timexes these are fancy watches
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, I mean I've become a watch collector since gosh two thousand and sixteen and and it happened in part because you know uh, and I wrote a piece in The New Yorker about this about how um, I was so scared of the election, I just needed to find some kind of a kind a of subject I didn't know anything about and to try to learn and, and something that that is kind of where there's no I mean, you can't politicize it I mean I guess you can, but you know where it's just a bunch of reference numbers and uh, you know different watchmakers, different time periods, different functions, a lot of it is engineering and mechanics and arts and all this different stuff so just to take my mind off things and also watching I, i'm very anxious person watching the second hand goes go around and a mechanical watch really calms me down so whenever i'm about to suffer a uh, panic attack and, and barry is i think very similar um he looks at the second hands of his watch and it calms him down so i have become something of a watch collector uh i've never spent money on anything before in my life so i've always I've, i think i've stored up a decent amount of money because i've never you know i don't treat myself too much but all of a sudden i thought oh my god i, I love these things they calm me down, um, and as I was writing Barry, you know, again, somebody who has trouble with human, with other human beings, trouble with social cues, trouble with language. Sometimes um, he needed a hobby that was all about just reams of data, you know, knowing reams of data about something, and watches become his thing.
0: So, what about the um, death of a mother and not a very good relationship with the father? You've explored this before many of
1: the, uh, many of my American friends, when they come talk about their parents, they complain about, uh, the absence of their parents, you know, about how their parents never got a part of their lives, never really supported them. And, and, and among immigrant families, you know, the conjecture is often, not always, but it's often, you know, my God, they can't, you know, they won't leave me alone. They're just, they're just constantly monitoring every single thing about me, I, my success, my lack of success, you know, um, what I did, uh, when I toured for my uh, memoir, A uh, Little Failure, which is my mom's nickname for me, there were many Russians who, you know, came to me and said, uh, can you sign this book to, uh, you know, another little failure? My mom also calls me that. Or can you sign this book to a failed paralegal, which is what my mom calls me? You know, so uh, <laughs> there's this sense of, so when I went, was writing this book, I wanted to, instead of having parents who were overly uh, in, uh, my main character's life. I wanted to do a more American, since this is my first book that is not uh, seen as an immigrant, but, but Barry as the main character is not an immigrant. Uh, so I wanted to have a kind of absence, his father is absent, lives across the country, uh, never really cared for him that much, didn't know what to do. And the mother, of course, is gone. Um, and the fact that the mother died when Barry is five means that he really doesn't have a template for what a mother should be. and he has a few memories that he tries to dredge up, but they're very hard to do because she died when he was so young. So his search for, for, you know, somebody to love is in a sense a search without any antecedents. He doesn't really know there is no role model for this, um, which possibly also accounts for some of the the reasons why he flails so much and is unable to connect to other people.
0: Do you know the Portuguese concept of saudade?
1: Yes, the longing for for home that the fishermen had.
0: Yes, but it's almost it's almost like a longing that is impossible to rectify, mm-hmm, yeah. and I exactly. feel like your yeah. characters have that.
1: Yeah, yeah, some Dutch. I remember learning it when I went to Brazil. the concept. Um, yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, I left. Russia when I was seven, but for some weird reasons, I really remember it well. In some ways, I remember it better than I remember my early years in America, which I think were so traumatic that I, you know, I took so many of them out. But yeah, absolutely. There was uh, there's a feeling when you leave, and, and I was in love with everything about Leningrad, the city I was in. And I loved the architecture, and I loved the history, and I was still you know, a precocious kid. I was always trying to learn more about it, and, and I loved the Soviet Union. I loved the Red Army. I thought the city. So, and these were, of course, not great things, but losing it when I was a child, I think, was the first sort of giant loss or feeling of almost kind of geographic betrayal that I felt. And I think that maybe that influences the fact that my parents just feel the same way.
0: Well, now Putin's so close with our president. He's
1: back. Weird. You know, this idea, I always thought that a Russian would become more like America. And in the end, you know, America once is is being run by a kleptocrat who has, you know, and Putin is the most masterful kleptocrat. So I understand why, why our president looks up to him. But the idea that we would try to copy the Russian model, not the other way around, is absolutely scary.
0: So tell me a little bit about writing comedy in the sense that, it's very subjective. And so I think when you put comedy out into the world or things that have high elements of comedy, that it's, I don't know if it's harder to sell. I don't know if it's more scary to write. But I'm just wondering your experience of that because it is such a subjective art form.
1: Well, it's tough. Look, I mean, it, 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 as you said, it, it is subjective. It means some people are really going to get it. And, and many, many, many people are not going to get it. So you really are trying to, you know, it's like throwing a dart at a board and hoping you hit someone near the bullseye, but quite often you won't. There's a skill to comedy. There's a skill to figuring out the sort of ratio of ha-ha to, to not ha-ha. And every book differs. You know, Absurdistan was, I think, the book where I just tried to go for, you know, it's a satire through and through. There's, there's, there's moments of, of that longing that you described that Nisha has for his father and for other elements in his life. The city of New York that Misha misses very much, but it was a satire overall. This is Lake Success is, uh, and I know that some fans of mine may not love this part. It, it's less satirical, I think. It's more social realism. I hope there's humor on every page, but it's more subdued. And I think it's because, in a way, you know, my previous novels dealt in some ways with Russia and Russians, and that required a of you know, heavy lift, the kind of giant, you know, that is present in Russian satire and in Russian life. Here, we're dealing with a different country. And so here, I think, and also because, you know, this is my country and and the novel takes place as, you know, the country's sort of torn away from me, as it it slips away from from its citizens or or the majority of its citizens, that there's no way that you can have a kind of sadness there. you can have the humor, but the, the ratio of humor to sadness is going to be different.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah.
1: So the book that I chose to read is a book by the writer David Gates. Um, and it's called Jernigan, Jernigan, Um He was my professor back in graduate school, uh, has since become a friend was a, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize when it came out. It was his first book. He since for written a few. And what I love about this passage is I'm always – I'm very interested in fight scenes. I love when people fight. Um, and, of course, the best fights take place between parents and children, but I think even better fights are between romantic partners. So I'm always trying to – and like the has more than a few fights between many romantic partners. Um, but this one – this one is a fight between the title character, Zernigan, and his ex-wife, Judith. Or I should say his late wife, Judith, because I think she dies at one point. You pathetic, life-denying, she shook her head. I can't even think of a right noun. A noun is a verb of being, and you don't even have any being. Okay, I said. Sounds like time for Betty Bye. I don't suppose I really thought that once her head hit the pillow, she'd pass out, and that would be the end of it. Probably I just wanted to get the subject of bed stirred up again so she'd really start behaving unforgivably, so I'd have another thing not to forgive. And sure enough, see we really were partners. Betty by to do what? she said. So you can roll on your side with your limp dick between your legs? Right, I said, getting up and facing her all charged up now to throw the don't argue with them when they're drunk rule out the window. You make yourself so appealing. I can't understand why I'm not hard for you 24 hours a day. She picked up her glass from the coffee table. Oh, Peter, she said in her mock and love voice. Wouldn't it be romantic if we had a fireplace right on that wall? She pointed, then threw the glass overhand. I thought the noise would bring Danny out of his room, but he must have been far down in stage two sleep or whatever stage it is. Either that or he knew better by now. She flopped back down on the couch and stared up at me. As usual, she said, you're just totally the master of the situation. Judith behaves herself so badly, and all Peter is doing is blamelessly trying to keep things under control. Whatever, I said. I'm going to sleep. Good night. It's so thrilling, she said, the way you dominate me. Oh, Peter, I'm your dog. Rip my clothes off and fuck me. She bared her teeth. Then she laughed and kept laughing, which was scarier than the teeth. Oh, my, she said finally. In the morning, I'm going to be so contrite, and that won't touch your heart either.
0: So tell me why you chose that.
1: Well, it's a perfect sort of fight scene. I mean, it's, you know, it's toward the beginning of the book. It's, he has to set up these two characters, and he has to set them up quickly. Uh, he's, he's done some work on Jordan and Judith is, is, new, to the, is new to the book at this point. Um, and everything we need to know about who they are as separate people is brought out in their interaction together. Um, and at the same time, you know, it's dialogue, 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 dialogue. But the, the sort of the coup de grace, the most wonderful part of this is that something big happens, something violent happens. The violence isn't between them either. She picks up a glass. She says, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a fireplace over there, which is just exactly what, you know, a couple in love would say as they're trying to make domestic plans. Right. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a fireplace over, over there? And then she throws that glass and it smashes and breaks and there's wine everywhere and, uh, Holy cow. I mean, that is just spectacular. And then it doesn't end there. It continues on and on and on. And she kind of you know, takes them apart further and further and further. Um, and so you, you're left with this wonderful dialogue, this portrait of these two human beings and an action scene. You know, that, that's almost cinematic in nature. It's, it's really got everything.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft?
1: So this is a scene that was a little tough and you mentioned before Javon the drug dealer and you know it was tough to write because um um I didn't want to condescend to Javon in fact if anything I wanted to kind of show that Javon who is a you know he's a drug dealer in Baltimore he's very young but that you know everyone is selling uh, a combination of heroin and cocaine and he's still selling crack which is completely uh, you know, out of season, but I wanted to show that, you know, he was failing at his job and, and uh, Barry's failing as a hedge fund manager and that the work that, uh, that Barry does as a hedge fund manager is, it doesn't bring society any, any, doesn't, isn't any better for society than, than the stuff that Javon sells. But in the end, I wanted to have Barry sort of get very excited about meeting somebody from, from, you know, that different part of the world. Uh, and immediately set upon this idea of how he's going to help him out. And the idea he comes up with is the worst idea humanly possible, which is he's going to start a fund to give expensive watches to children in low-income neighborhoods. So this is the section. He wanted to make Javon a force to be reckoned with. He wanted his name to ring out. If Barry had had his father's support, he would have been a billionaire by now. He pictured the two of them working some kind of startup. What if he launched a foundation, one that would help urban youth buy their first mechanical watch and learn to care for it? A device that recorded time, not to mention showed its scarcity, would add order and rigor to their lives, as as it had added order and rigor to his. That was the problem, right? These kids' lives had no rigor. Sitting on a stoop on an empty street, trying to sell drugs that had gone out of style decades ago, no one to monitor them or set measurable goals. They didn't mean to be inherently irresponsible people, but that's what they were. So many of his hedge fund peers were obsessed by the scholastic records of black children trying to shut down their public schools and turn them into charters. But Barry's Urban Watch Fund would be a better way to disrupt the system. It would turn children into stakeholders, whatever that meant. Outfitting hundreds of children with real Rolex Oyster Perpetuals, their cheapest model, would be expensive. But as he had seen some guys say on one Baltimore billboard, quote, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. The kids would have to learn the histories of Hans Wilsdorf and Alfred Davis, Rolex's suave London-based founders. There would be trips to Baselworld, the industry's trade fair, and visits to the Patek Philippe Museum in Geneva. A crest would be drawn, a watch's movement surrounded by the words rigor and responsibility, or however you said that in Latin, rigorous, "responsabilitas." And then, when Barry's urban watch fund scaled, he'd present Jayvon at the Salon International de la Horlogerie, and he'd say... I found this young man selling crack on the streets of West Baltimore, and now he's selling Breitlings at the Torneau on Madison. And then Seema would have to take back all that shit about his lack of soul and imagination.
0: So tell me a little bit more about why you chose that.
1: This is Barry at his ultimate sort of disconnect. You know, the idea that so many of the people that I met in the Hitchbun world tell me, I started out with nothing. You know, which was kind of the same version of the story my parents would always say, which was wasn't incorrect. You know, we came here with three hundred dollars in our pocket. But the idea has always been, since I had to go through so much to get to where I am, anybody can do it. You know, there's no there's no impediment. Anyone, anybody from any ethnicity, race, gender, sexual orientation, nothing can stop anybody. This country, boy, it's just a level playing field. I did it, so you can do it too. And so Barry, you know, tries to, I mean, he genuinely feels something for Javon, who we met, who was kind enough. He you know, talked to him. He gave him some crack. Uh, he feels a connection to him. But the, the way he goes about trying to help Javon is a way that makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and often when people would talk about, when, when hedge funders would talk about ways in which they can help urban children, uh, I would just think, my God, why don't you spend a year actually living in an urban, in, in a neighborhood where these kids are from, trying to see what life is like, trying to understand, you know, not trying to do this from the Upper East Side, but, but actually making the trip to to parts of the South Bronx or, or West Baltimore, which is where this takes place. Um, so, as I said before, you know, the, the, the fiction that I love is the fiction of delusion. How different are your are how different are you from the way you perceive yourself? And I think in that section, we really kind of catch Barry at his most, hopefully parts that are funny, but it's also him really missing out on who he is as a human being. And, and, and as a consequence, doing nothing of any help to anybody.
0: Where do you write?
1: I write in bed, uh, just lying in bed. I often have back and shoulder pain because I, uh, I don't move. Uh, just lie in bed. Um, many great writers, of course, Written in bed, and I'm not comparing myself to Proust, who did that, uh, who was also asthmatic like me. But, um, yep, uh, I'm a bed writer.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Well, I, I do a lot of my writing uh, in the country, upstate, uh, New York, and so um, I'll either swim uh, for quite a while, either a mile a day or somewhere in that vicinity, or I'll go for a moderate hike. I'm not claiming I'm going to climb any giant mountains, but I do go for, you know, a moderate hike. Uh, I love seeing animals, so I often I'll walk past the sheep farm and say hi to the sheep. All that stuff really relaxes me.
0: And who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I have a bunch of friends. If you look at my acknowledgments, you'll see that there's maybe from six to ten people that keep, you know, popping up. Uh, many of them are my friends upstate. There will also be a lot of people from different worlds. So, you know, Sad dealt with technology. Um, this book, of course, deals with finance. Um there's always people from different of uh, different heritage in my book. So uh for Super Sad, one of the main characters was Korean. So of course there were many uh Korean Americans who were being thanked at the end of the book who read the book. Uh in this book the character is Indian to be precise from the uh, Tamil Nadu uh, part of India, southern India where her parents come from. So many people who are from there who are my friends also read the book. So a lot of people it's like almost like a, an MFA workshop continued, if you will.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? You know, so so far.
1: I hate to say this because I hope I don't sound like a schmuck, but there hasn't been that much of it. I mean, I can't. There was one agent who rejected me a long time ago, but the agent picked it up the next day. So it haven't been just giant moments of rejection. But I do like, you know, I mean, I like rejection. I miss it because, you know, it's what I grew up with. So I'm one of those people that, you know, I love bad reviews. I'm like, ah, good, good, good. Yeah, somebody, somebody doesn't like it. That, that feels familiar.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: It's just, I like the word hamburger. Um, I don't know why I like eating hamburgers and grilling hamburgers. But to me, it's just, there's something very funny about it. I, I first heard it when I came to America from Russia. We called we pronounced it gamburger. The H is often a G in Russian, gamburger. But just, there's, there's ham. I mean, there isn't ham, but there's ham in it. There's a burger. It's a funny word. There's, I love the, the product. I don't like the actual product, but I love the name of the product, Hamburger Helper. They did a hamburger, had a helper. You know, there's a commercial hamburger helper. Make a great meal or something. So that made an impact on me when I was a child. So I'm a big fan of the words hamburger or, or, or veggie burger or vegan burger, if, if that's how you roll. But, you know, for me, there's just nothing funnier than that.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me was Gary Steingart author of one memoir and four novels, including his most recent, Lake Success. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters@gmail.com. at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.